Hi everyone, Pastor John Nays from Bridgepoint Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin, coming to you again with another uh, video in the series that I'm doing on the book of Revelation. I've decided to just do the first three chapters, and so that's what I'm taking us through. Um, the last several videos, or last four exactly, are uh, about the first chapter, just the first chapter and going through uh, the, the vision there that John had of, of uh, Christ and of his church. And today I'm going to start the churches themselves. And I, I get a little excited about this. I think these are maybe the most um, overlooked areas for doctrine and for truth that we've, uh, we've avoided in the church. And for some reason, I don't know why. We don't talk a lot about these churches and the, this letter to them. But let me just talk a minute about the significance of this. This is Christ himself, the revelation of Christ, the uh, resurrected Christ, the reigning Christ, standing among the churches um, as, as the Lord in the presence of the churches, and the churches in the presence of him. And these seven churches are actual churches in Asia Minor, are all seven of them. And the significance of why he chose these seven over any others, that's been debated ad nauseum, and I don't really care about that. So um, what I really want to point at is my, my understanding, or at least my view, is that he chose these seven churches because I think he was trying to deal with seven particular issues in the church that he was trying to correct. Now understand this. This is Christ speaking to the church directly for the first time since his resurrection. He had spoken through the, through the apostles, and they had written the letters, Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters, so on and so forth, uh, through the um, through the Gospels, the four Gospels. So we have this view of what he said over and over again, and we understand that. But this is the first time he's spoken to the churches directly, um, in, in written form, especially this form, since his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. So for the first time he's talking directly to churches and to the pastors of those churches or the leaders of those churches um, since he left. And he had left the leadership and the direction of the church in the hands of the apostles, but that age had come to, had, had ended. The apostles aren't around anymore, only John remains. Peter's been gone, or Paul's been gone for 30 years probably when this letter is written. The, the Jerusalem uh, leadership had been disbanded. They were sent off into the world and fled for their lives, literally. Uh, out of Jerusalem, so the council of, council of churches in Jerusalem no longer existed. And so Christ makes this um, amazing kind of proclamation. Here I am speaking to the churches directly again, and I have a word for each of them. Now the words that come across in this passage or in, for each of these churches is different pertaining to each church. And yet I think the truth of what he's saying to these churches um, has to be not only recognized, but I think need to be um, brought to our church's forefront again. That if we're not careful, we fall into one of these seven categories, or seven problems that face the church, and how do we deal with them, or how do we continue to deal with them? So I think these letters especially apply to us today as we continue to, to do the work of the church that we do it according to the way the Lord intended. And that the things that God holds as important, 
as crucial to the life of the church remain important and crucial to the life of the church. And I think that's what the Lord is saying here. And so let's take a look at some of these things. First of all, the seven, the messages to each of the church contain three things. One, the vision of Christ, the one who is, walking amongst the churches, still the presence of the church, dependent on the presence of Christ. And the uh, dependence of Christ uh, is crucial to all of our churches. And secondly, uh, a note of their works. I see your works. I, I, I'm watching what you're doing. I'm paying attention. Again, note that he's paying attention. He does know what's going on in the church. He knows what's going on in our church. He knows what's going on in your church. And he knows what's going on in the church in general. And if we are the church of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ, this is important for us to not only hold on to, but to embrace and try to maintain and con contain his presence as best as we can, the best that we can in our lives and in our churches. And again, I think sometimes the church fails at this. And thirdly, a promise. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. The same promise that Christ has been giving us from, the, from day one, really, from the birth of the church. The church must be true to its task. The church, church must be true to Christ. And the church must continue on in their work for the Lord uh, with proper motives and proper passion and proper love. And when you overcome, there is a reward. So let's dive into the church of Ephesus. Just to note that Paul and Timothy and probably even John uh, led this church either as uh, the pastor, the founding pastor, or or the uh, main teacher and director of the church at some point in their history. In fact, you'll find a, a long story about the church in Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. So um, if you want to do a little background reading, it's a good place to start. So chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You, you who persevere and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the, the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the church in Ephesus. Now, Christ's presence in the church is first and foremost. He's walking among the lampstands. The lampstands are in his presence. Notice these things that he says to the church in Ephesus. I know your works. I know you work hard. I know that you persevered. I know that you don't tolerate wicked people. A special note to that, that you don't tolerate wicked people. When wickedness comes in and you try to deal with it, you deal with it right away and you say, look, there's no place for that in, in the church. Uh, the church should take note again. That you've tested the claims of false apostles. Now, there are false apostles that came into the church then. There are false apostles that come into the church now. Some who have just 
zeroed in on one particular point of truth or point of the gospel, and that's all they know and that's all they promote, who don't have a clear picture of the overall work of the church and understand it, its principles and the practices that, that it operates on. And lastly, I think the most important part is that they don't understand that the Christ of the church is the Christ of the church, that Jesus is the leader of the church and we all answer to him. And each of us has a responsibility to hold on to the truth that he has taught, that he's directed us to, and not fall into false teachings or get sidetracked into a long uh, lineage of pursuing um, or chasing rabbits, rather than staying true to the foundation and the fundamental truths of God's word. We need to stay on track. And this is what Christ is saying to the church in Ephesus. Most importantly in this letter, and I think everybody draws attention to this one point, is that they've lost their first love. Now this is a church that's been in existence since Paul visited there and started the church. Acts chapter 19 again. So this is a church that is now in its second generation of Christians. They've lost their first love. They've fallen from that position of the love of God. In other words, they've become very good at being Christians. They've become very good at doing the work of the church. And yet their passion for Christ himself, their passion for the work that they're doing, has diminished. Christ doesn't want us just serving him out of some duty or responsibility or to try to gain his attention or to look good amongst our peers. There has to be a force behind it that goes deep into our souls and comes from the depth of God's love for us. That God loves us so much that he pursues us and comes after us and, and woos us and brings us back to himself. And he's constantly trying to do that in the church today. The problem in modern churches, like this church, second, third generation Christians, don't have that first knowledge of experiential faith, that experiential relationship with Christ, that powerful love that transformed us from sinners to saints has been lost. We've grown up in the church. We, we know the church. We know how to do church. We speak the proper church language, but we don't have the same passion for Christ that a first-generation Christian does. And here Christ is calling us back and saying, look, you've gotta, you're, you're doing all the right things, but not necessarily for all the right reasons and certainly not with the right motivation. Motivation must always be our passion for Christ, our love for him, our love to serve him comes out of that. Our love to serve others grows out of that and grows stronger as we continue to grow deeper in love with him. And notice I didn't say fall in love. You grow in love. You mature in your relationships. You, you grab that, that first emotional response and it transforms into a deeper commitment, a loving relationship, a caring response a giving that's given because you love them, and that's all. Not that there's anything to be gained in it, not that there's anything that you can grow, that you can grasp from it, but you just love the person. You love them enough to give your own life for them, and that's the relationship Christ has called us all to. Take up your cross and follow me simply means that, that we love him enough to, to lay our lives down on the cross,
and follow him. Not just out of duty, but out of a passionate relationship that grows from a, from a continually seeking after him as he continually seeks after us. Well, let's move on. Second generation Christians need to understand that. The Nicolaitans, he said, I, I know that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, and let me, under, let me help you understand who they are. The Nicolaitans are a sect of people. The word translated is probably conqueror of people or people that conquer other people. And they become rulers over other people. In fact, they become the leaders of the church, kind of, but not really the leaders of the church. They believe in a hierarchy of Christian existence that we are better than the average person. We know more. We have more understanding. We have to be careful of such people and such things in our own lives. That we don't allow others to tell us that our faith is not real simply because well, it doesn't measure up to theirs or their understanding. Our personal relationship with Christ is just that. It's very personal. And even though we take his word and we study and we continue to grow, it doesn't make us any higher or more important or better than someone else. Than someone else. We've all been saved by grace. And grace is it. That's it. Even the grace to understand even the grace to know deeper truths or understand great, under, great things from God's word does not make us better. It's just a grace. It's the same as the grace that saved us in the first place. It all comes from him and has a little or nothing to do with what we have done. So spiritual leadership that robs people of their spiritual freedom and that type of spiritual leadership leads to cult-like followings where people are following the person more than they're following the Christ. Remember, the seven golden lampstands are in the presence of the Lord, no one else. He's the Lord of the church or he's not the Lord of the church. And if we follow personalities and we follow after truths because we like what they teach or we truth sayers who tell us what we want to hear, we run a very dangerous game of having the lampstand removed from his presence. And there's no greater condemnation for the church than to not be in the presence of the Lord. Let's move on. Also, the Nicolaitans are a sect that introduced pagan rituals into the church and said, look, it's okay to have these pagan things going on. There's nothing wrong with them. Besides, we have grace. And the grace of God forgives, and we just, we just find that grace over and over again. And maybe we don't have this so much in our own churches today, but I think it's really there, sometimes in very subtle ways. We've embraced the ways of the world and said, you know, God is gracious and good, and this stuff doesn't really, you know, it's not really a mountain to die on. And I use that same frame. Look, that's not a mountain I'm willing to die on. We have to be careful of such things that the Lord doesn't look at us and say, you've lost your first love. You're no longer in love with me because you want all these other things too. You want Christianity plus, Christianity plus, and the screw tape, tape letters by C.S. Lewis. He makes mention of that, I believe it's chapter 23 or letter 23, about Christianity plus. There's a lot of that going on in the church today. There's no pluses to Christianity. There's no additions to it. You can't add to it or take away from it. We are followers of the living Christ. We are the 
church of the living God. There's no higher place we can be. There's no greater truth that we can embrace. There's no greater lover of our souls than Christ himself. So let's fall in love with him again. Let's grow in our relationship with him so it overcomes every other desire in our lives. And we become consumed not by the things we can do for him, but by the, the honor to just know him and serve him from that. That should be our goal. The promise is that if you stay true, like the church in Ephesus, if you stay true to this, here's what he ends the letter with. As he hears, let him hear with the spirit of sitting to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. He's saying, if you overcome, if you keep on the right path, you'll eat from the tree of life, just like the tree of life in the book of Genesis. If you eat from the tree of life, you'll never die. You have eternal life forever and ever. You'll get to be with him in paradise. That's the promise. So let's be overcomers and lovers of God, not lovers of men. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time. Chapter 2, the book of Revelation.